Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features J.A. Jantz at Washington County Library, R.H. Stafford. Mystery phenom J.A. Jantz is the mind behind not one, but four blockbuster series. Her corpus, stretching back to 1985, includes nearly 70 novels to date. Jantz's popular and compelling protagonists include news anchor turned sleuth Allie Reynolds, trailblazing sheriff Joanna Brady, and Arizona's colorful Walker family. Each has a devoted following, but none has been solving crimes for as long or can as boast as many installments as retired Seattle police detective J.P. Beaumont. First introduced nearly 35 years ago in Intel Proven Guilty, Beaumont has been the focus of 24 books and several well-received novellas. Two in the series, Without Due Process in 1992 and Failure to Appear in 1993, have won Jantz the prestigious American Mystery Award. Beaumont's latest adventure, Sins of the Fathers, hit shelves in September. In his most personal and suspenseful case to date, the detective is coaxed out of retirement by an old acquaintance to solve a missing persons case, one that dredges up unwelcome memories. You know this bookstore, this book tour started on September 23rd. That's a long time ago. And as I was flying from Miami to Indianapolis yesterday at some ungodly hour of the morning, the lyrics to the song popped into my head. And I think looking around, a lot of you will recognize this. Here I sit in a railroad station, got a ticket to my destination. I'm on a tour of one night stands, my suitcase and guitar in hand, and every stop is neatly planned for a poet and a one-man band. Homeward bound, I wish I was homeward bound. Home where my thoughts escaping, home where my music's playing, home where my love lies waiting silently for me. Every day is an endless chain of cigarettes and magazines. And each town looks the same to me, the movies and the factories and every stranger's face I see 
reminds me that I long to be homeward bound. I wish I was homeward bound. Home where my thoughts escaping, home where my music's playing, home where my love lies waiting silently for me. Tonight I'll play the game again. I'll sing my songs and pretend. Well, all, when all the words come back to me in shades of mediocrity, like emptiness in harmony, I need someone to comfort me. Homeward bound, I wish I was homeward bound. Home where my thoughts escaping, home where my music's playing, home where my love lies waiting silently for me. And tomorrow I get to go home. <laughs> How did I get started on this path? Well, At Greenway School in Bisbee, Arizona, when it came time to be in the second grade, you had a choice of Mrs. Spangler's class on the right and Mrs. Barker's class on the left. I have no idea how Anthony Dodalski, the principal, sorted those 50 or so kids into two semi-equal classrooms. For all I knew, he pulled names out of the hat. But we would not be here tonight if he hadn't sent me to Mrs. Spangler's class. Because in her classroom, over under the windows, there were bookshelves stuffed with books. And if you finished your work early, as I often did, you could leave your desk, you could go over there, you could choose a book and take it back to your desk to read it. And it was among Mrs. Spangler's books that I met the world of Oz. Not just the Wizard of Oz and Dorothy and the Ruby Slippers, but all of those other wonderful Oz books as well. I wasn't that taken with a wizard hiding behind his green curtain. What got my attention was Frank Baum hiding behind the words. And as soon as I realized the living, breathing person put those words on the pages, that's what I wanted to be, and that's what I wanted to do. I grew up, I won a scholarship to the University of Arizona, I signed up to be an English major because I wanted to be a writer. And I, I worked my way through school working in, our, in my dorm, ushering at the uh, university auditorium events. But I also worked 15 hours a week in the English department. In the summer before my junior year, I was in the department I was putting the faculty members mail into their little slots. And the creative writing professor came in and I said, I'm hoping to sign up for your class this fall. And he said, you're a girl. 
And I said, so? He said, girls become teachers or nurses, boys become writers. And he wouldn't let me into his class. So I got a teaching degree. I taught high school English in Tucson for two years. Then I got a library science degree. I was a K through 12 librarian on the reservation for five years. And then I sold life insurance for 10. But while I was doing all of that, I married a guy who was allowed in the creative writing class that was closed to me. He had the right kind of plumbing. He didn't have a lot of other qualifications. <laughs> he never had anything published. He imitated Faulkner and Hemingway primarily by drinking too much and writing too little. He died of chronic alcoholism at age 42, a year and a half after I divorced him. But that didn't keep him from telling me in 1968, there's only going to be one writer in our family, and I'm it. Well, you know what? He was half right. <laughs> there was only one writer in our family. In 1972, my first husband, comma, the rat, and I, my, my second husband, the good one, says my first husband was so bad that it has made his life perfect. <laughs> but my first husband and I were teaching on the reservation. We lived in this little house on top of a volcanic knoll out in the boonies. It was 30 miles to town in either direction. It was two miles off the highway, seven miles to the nearest neighbor and or telephone. And in December of 1972, it was time for me to have our first baby. So my husband drove me to Tucson. He dropped me off at the hospital. I had the baby. And three days later, he came back to pick me up. And he was drunk. And I had this terrible choice to make. There were no infant seats. and infant carriers that you could belt into cars in 1972. So what to do? Do I have him hold the baby and me drive home, or me hold the baby and him drive home? So he held the baby, and I drove, drove myself home from the hospital, 35 miles. And by the time we got home, I was sort of upset. And I said, you know, you always promised that when we had kids, you would stop drinking. And guess what? The kid is here. And he said, well, OK. So he went into the house. He went into the kitchen. He opened all of his booze bottles and dumped them down the kitchen sink. But what I didn't understand was the whole time I was in the hospital, he was on a three-day terrible bender. And I was so naive that I had no idea how dangerous it could be for someone in that condition to go off booze cold turkey. So um, for the next five days, I was at home on the hill with a newborn baby and a husband who was going through DTs. We couldn't turn off the lights because the bugs crawled on him. We, uh, he sat at the dining room table and played chess 
with people I couldn't see. He insisted that there were FBI agents down at the water hole listening in on our conversations. And I kept thinking, I can be strong because he's keeping his promise. And then three weeks later, some of his drinking buddies showed up. They popped the top off a can of Bud and handed it over, him, over to him, and we were off and running again. In the course of the next eight years, he was hospitalized nine times for chronic alcoholism. Finally, in 1980, in Phoenix, he showed up at my six-year-old's t-ball game, my son's t-ball game, so drunk at five o'clock in the afternoon that when the game was over, he crawled on his hands and knees from the bleachers back to the car. And it was during that walk with my children, their friends, their friends' parents, when I finally realized that if 18 years of loving him hadn't fixed him, I had to do something to save my children and save myself. And so I got a divorce. I didn't divorce him because I instantly stopped loving him. I divorced him to save my life. But I was still susceptible, and I knew it. And I knew that if I stayed in Phoenix, and if he asked me to take him back, I would. And so, I got out of Dodge. The kids and I loaded our uh, worldly goods into a U-Haul trailer, hooked it onto my 78 Cutlass Supreme Brome, and we did an adventure in moving and moved from Phoenix to Seattle. And when I was there, I took the Dale Carnegie course, and someone heard me tell a story about an encounter with a serial killer in Tucson in 1970, and they said, somebody should write a book about that. And as soon as she said those words, I thought, well, I'm divorced. What have I got to lose? And so she said that on a Thursday night. I thought about it all day Friday, all day Saturday. And finally, Sunday morning, I thought, nobody wants to hear about how you had this life-changing experience and 10 years later you get a divorce. How about if I write a novel? And so Sunday afternoon after church, I sat down and I began writing a handle longhand, uh, a novel in longhand. And over the course of the next three months, I wrote a 1,400-page manuscript. <laughs> Nobody ever bought it, obviously. <laughs> Had a good name. I'm sorry about losing that name. The name was by reason of insanity. Um, it was thinly fictionalized true crime, but part of the fiction, I knocked my husband off in that book. And that was really good for me. And I gave him a wonderful funeral in the book. It was in the high school uh, gym and everybody was there. He would have loved it. I found an agent. I went to see her. And I had my manuscript in a box. She never even touched the box. She said, this is your first book? And I said, yes. She said, it's too long, cut it in half. So I did. I took out 700 pages, and she still couldn't sell it. The editors who turned it down 
said that the stuff that was fiction was fine and the stuff that was real was unbelievable and would never happen, even though it had already happened. So my agent said, okay, why don't you write something that is completely fiction? Now, I think a lot of beginning writers make a strategic error. If they're unable to sell their first manuscript, and that first manuscript wasn't saleable. It still exists. It's with my papers at the University of Arizona Library. But it was on the job training. I wasn't allowed in creative writing. So I didn't know you, had to, you should leave some stuff out. So I put everything in. But in the course of writing that, 1,400 pages is the equivalent of writing three complete books. And in the course of writing that long manuscript, I taught myself to do pacing. I taught myself to do dialogue. I taught myself to do scene setting. All of those things I needed to know. So uh, I think a lot of beginning writers, if they get an agent who is unable to sell their first manuscript, they keep the manuscript and fire the agent. I did the exact opposite. I fired the manuscript and kept the agent, and she is still my agent 60 plus books later. But she came up with an idea. She said, why don't you write something that is completely fiction? Well, I had an idea for a book set in Seattle. And for about six months, I tried to make it work, and it just wouldn't come together. In the spring of 1983, when it was time for spring break, I sent my kids to Camp Rock Island. By the way, when I was starting to write, I was a single parent, two little kids, no child support, a full-time job selling life insurance, and the time I had to write was from 4 o'clock in the morning until 7 when I got the kids up to get ready for school and got me dressed to go to my real job. So I sent the kids to Camp Orkyla, and then I sent myself to Portland to send, spend five days with a friend of mine from my days in the life insurance business. I got on the train at the King Street Station with a stack of blue line notebooks and a fistful of ballpoint pens. And as the train pulled out of the King Street Station, I thought, what would happen if I wrote this book through the detective's point of view? So I took one of the notebooks, and I took one of the pen, pens, and I wrote the words, she might have been a cute kid once. That was hard to tell now. She was dead. And as soon as I wrote those words, I was walking around Magnolia Bluff in J.P. Beaumont's shoes, I was seeing the world, I was seeing what he was seeing, hearing what he, was, he heard, hearing what he said, but I was also hearing what he was thinking. And J.P. Beaumont and I have been author and character since spring break of 1983. I think some of those early Beaumonts are now legitimately hyster historical fiction. <laughs> 
a guy wrote to me last year and he says, why is, why is Belmont always walking around Seattle looking for a quarter and a payphone? Why doesn't he just use his cell? Well, I am well aware that cell phones went on sale for the first time in 1986 because in 1968, my husband was working for Motorola in uh, Chicago. He was on the scientific uh, research group and they brought him a piece of balsa wood and said this is going to be the shape of the first cell phone, build a radio to go inside it, which he did without benefit of integrated circuits, by the way. <sighs> There's a guy on TV. He comes sweeping onto a set and he says, when I invented the cell phone for Motorola in 1968, I just want to put my foot through the TV set because that guy was in marketing. He didn't build anything, he didn't design anything, but it's a 72 inch TV set, so I keep my shoe on, but I, I always mutter very ungrandmotherly words under my breath whenever he shows up. And when the gray brick cell phone came out, you could use it, but you sure as hell couldn't carry it around in your pocket. <laughs> I understand that my idol, Agatha Christie, became quite provoked with, oops, became quite provoked with Hercule Poirot and was ready to be done with him long before her fans were ready for her to be done with him. But 24 books later, I still like J.P. Beaumont. When I sat down to write Sins of the Fathers, within a couple of minutes, I was back in his world, back in his mindset, hearing what he was saying and hearing what he was thinking. And you know, he's aged pretty well. He's, he doesn't always say the things he used to say. He kind of has given him self permission to think before he speaks, which is kind of a good thing at our age. But when I started writing this book, it was like pulling on a comfy old terry cloth robe and sitting down in front of a roaring fire. I just felt like I was at home. And I have a feeling this lady in the front row, when she started reading this book, felt the same way. When I, when I first started writing about Bo, yes, his story is told in the first person. He was a cop. I had to do a lot of research to make that work because I had never been a police officer. He was a Seattle native. I had to do a lot of work to make that work because I had lived in Seattle less than two years. But I needed him to have something to do when he wasn't at work. Yes, I was not allowed in the creative writing program, but I was smart enough to figure out, you write what you know. And guess what? I knew a lot about drinking. 
So Beaumont did the kind of drinking I had lived with for 18 years of my life. The fourth book that came out is this one. And we'll be talking about this more because uh, a lot of this new book is based on what happened in this book. But this is Taking the Fifth. If I had been smart, I would have named the fifth book Taking the Fifth instead of naming the fourth book Taking the Fifth. And the fifth in, this, in the title has nothing to do with the Fifth Amendment and everything to do with the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle because my nephew, Dale Allen Lane, was the head carpenter at the Fifth Avenue while I was writing this book. And so it's dedicated to D-A-L. If all the world's a stage, then God must be the head carpenter. But I was signing this book at a mall in Portland, Oregon. I was sitting out in the mall hallway outside of B. Dalton's with my books spread out on a cardboard, a card table. And a woman came stalking up to the table and she said, you know Bo drinks every day? He has a drink of choice and it is interfering with his work. Does J.P. Beaumont have a problem? And I said, you know, these are books. <laughs> but in the course of that set of signings, six other people asked me the same question. And I finally figured out that the writer was the last one to notice. <laughs> so that is how Beaumont has his first undeniable blackout in book number seven. It's undeniable because he wakes up and he has injured his hands and he has no idea how it happened. Sort of hard to ask people, what did I do with my hands, to my hands that they're so screwed up? Uh, in book number eight, he's in treatment. Sins of the Fathers is book number 24. So there have been a lot more books with him sober than there were with him drinking. I receive emails from people who tell me they preferred him when he was a drunk. <laughs> I worry about those folks. <sighs> but he's changed a lot over time. And I, actually, I'd like to, when I, when I put that part of the book in, I just put it in as a piece of stage, stage business. I didn't attach any importance to it, but I should have. When I'm signing books, when the author is sitting at the table autographing books, the author is a target. And if there are any nutcases in the room, I, I don't see anybody like that tonight, but if there are, they will be sure to turn up at the table and they will be the last people in line because they want to trap you and have the author's undivided attention. I learned this lesson early on. I was doing a signing and a guy came waltzing up to the table. He said, are you the lady who writes the murder mysteries? I said, yes. He said, I've just been acquitted of murdering seven people. Do you want to write my book? No, thank you. <laughs> so I was in Texas. 
at the Texas Book Festival. And I was sitting there signing books. And so now I kind of keep an eye on the people who are in line so I can kind of know who's going to be a problem and who isn't. And I could see this guy back there who was just grinning at me from ear to ear. And I thought, yep, he's going to be the one. Well, then he came up in front of me. And when he got in front of me, I could see that he was pushing a stroller with a toddler in it. A, a, a little girl who was probably two to three years old. And he said, hi, my name is Rob. I first started reading your books when I was in the sixth grade at Rose Hill Junior High. He said, as soon as I read my first J.P. Beaumont book, I wanted to be a cop. He graduated from high school. He enlisted in the Army. The whole time he was in the Army, he worked as an MP. He said, when I mustered out of the Army, I was a raging alcoholic, but I, st I still wanted to be a cop. So he got hired by a jurisdiction in Central Texas, a small town in Central Texas. They sent him to the police academy. When he came, um, he told me on the day he graduated from the academy, he said he realized that he if he was ever going to be the kind of police officer Beaumont is, he had to get sober. So he went directly from the academy to treatment. And at the time I met him, he had just been appointed police chief in that little jurisdiction. But he said, I came here today because I wanted to introduce you to my daughter. Her name is Morgan. My wife wouldn't let me name her JP. <laughs> but that little girl has an entirely different existence than she would have if her father hadn't read one of my books in sixth grade and latched onto that part of the story that I didn't attach any particular importance to. I think, I think that's really sort of miraculous. When I went to write Sins of the Fathers, as I said, I knew it was going to have something to do with taking the fifth. When I finish writing a book, I hardly ever go back and reread it. Because by the time you write it and edit it and re-edit and re-edit and copy edit and do the galleys, I am sick and tired of that book and I don't care if I ever see it again. The only exception to that rule is this book, Hour of the Hunter. It's the first Walker family book. It was my first hardback. I had written nine Beaumont books in a row, and I was tired of both. I could never be Sue Grafton. I could never write that many books in a row about the same set of people. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I have a far more limited attention span. So I had written nine Beaumonts, and I threatened to knock him off. And my editor said, oh, don't do that. You remember that first 
book you wrote, By Reason of Insanity. How about if you rewrite that one and we'll turn it into uh, your first hardback? Well, the serial killer I mentioned was a guy who killed people at 20 minutes after two on the 22nd day of the month. He shot a 16-year-old girl off a bicycle. He shot a 40-something-year-old man off a bulldozer. And then he forced a woman off the highway out on the reservation, shot her, raped her in front of her two small children, and left her to die. And then, 45 minutes later, he gave my husband a ride to her house and asked him on the way there, you leave your wife out here by herself much? And my husband said, well, she's got the dogs. Well, he had no idea he was speaking to a serial killer. We found that out later. And by reason of insanity, as I said, was a thinly fictionalized retelling of that real story. Well, when my editor said, why don't you rework that book and turn it into your first hardback? I said, oh, okay. But the problem was, that serial killer was then, and still is, in prison in Florence, Arizona. And I didn't want to write a book that would draw his attention to me. My, my husband, who was the witness in that case, was long dead. But I didn't want him to get out of prison and come looking for me. So I had a contract to write a book. I had a paycheck to write a book. I had a deadline to write a book, and I didn't have a bad guy. So what I really had was a terrible case of writer's block. It was so serious that that year, when my University of Arizona alumni magazine came, I read the whole thing from cover to cover. <laughs> That's how desperate I was. And right at the back, there was this little boxed article that said the newly reconstituted creative writing program at the University of Arizona was just going swimmingly. So I turned to Bill, my second husband, and I said, well, I graduated from there and I've got all of these books out. Maybe they'd like me to come down to Tucson and be writer in residence for a semester in the sun. And Bill said, call them up, ask them. Well, I sold life insurance for 10 years. I'm not afraid of making a cold call. So I got the number from information, and I called. And I said, my name is J.A. Jans, but I graduated under the name of Judy Busk. My matriculation number was 123199. And wouldn't you like me to come be right? I've got all of these books out. Wouldn't you like me to come be writer in residence? And the guy said to me, and this is a direct quote again. Oh, we don't do anything with genre fiction here. We only do literary fiction. It was a miracle. I was healed of writer's block on the spot. <laughs> Hour of the Hunter is the story of a woman named Diana Ladd, who is a teacher on the Indian reservation but she really wants to be a writer. Like me, she was married to a guy who was allowed in a creative writing program that was closed to her. Her husband is dead. 
at the beginning of the book. And the crazed, the crazed killer turns out to be a former professor of creative writing <laughs> from the University of Arizona. Bear down. And so a few years ago, when they gave me an honorary doctorate of humane letters at the U of A, it was really hard to sit on that stage and not say neener, neener, neener. <laughs> of all of my books, though, if I need to look up a detail in this book, this book sucks me in and I read the whole thing. It's what I learned during my years on the reservation. I told 26 stories in K through 6 classrooms a week. And many of the stories I told were the tales and legends, the folklore of the Tohono O'odham people. And those are woven into the background of all the Walker books. But when I started, when I was getting ready to write Sins of the Fathers, I thought, okay. I'd better go back and read Taking the Fifth, because that book was written in 1980. It was published in 87, so it was written in 86. And that's a long time ago. So I read it. And I have to tell you, I was astonished by how politically incorrect we all were back in the 80s. There are words that come out of J.B. Beaumont's mouth that he would be tarred and feathered for in this day of, uh, and age. And then, and then, when he got drunk and hopped into bed for a one-night stand with somebody he hardly knew, oh, this was not the J.P. Beaumont I have come to know and love over the years. I was really, that one shocked me. And so, here is Beaumont now. He was 73 when this book was taking place. He's happily married to his new wife, relatively new, Mel Soames. They're living in Bellingham, where she's the newly appointed chief of police. They still have their condo in Seattle. He's made amends with his kids. So he's reconciled with his kids and they've gotten, he doesn't drink anymore. He's really, he's sort of growing old gracefully with one small exception. He is missing being a sworn police officer. He has his license to be a private investigator now, but he isn't exactly out beating the bushes for work. What he's doing instead is trying to figure out if he's really cut out to be a house husband. And the creature who is seeing him through this difficult time in his life is a recent addition to the family, an Irish wolfhound named Lucy. I can't tell you how many people wrote to me after Proof of Life came out and started their emails by saying, I love Lucy. <laughs> but since people often want to know, well, where do characters come from? And since Lucy is a character in this book, I thought I'd tell you, Lucy comes from two separate points of life in uh, my world. In the late 80s, 
My sons, Bill Jay and Tom, were going to school at Washington State University in Pullman. Bill Jay broke up with his long-term girlfriend. He was lonely. So he went to the pound and he got a puppy. And then the boys came home for, for, for Thanksgiving. Now, we had two sons going to, to WSU, and it was cheaper for us to buy a used mobile home and have them live in that than to pay apartment rentals. So they lived in that, and we had just installed new carpeting in the mobile home. And I knew that if I left housebreaking that puppy up to Bill and Tom, the carpeting was toast. So I said, okay, here's the deal. Leave Boney with me. Boney was uh, scrawny. And I said, leave him with me, and uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I will housebreak him. So they did, and I did. And he was so little that when I was housebreaking him, I could carry him up and down the stairs one-handed. Christmas came, Boney was housebroken. The boys left to go back to Pullman Sunday night. Thursday night they called. Boney had bonded with Grandma and the two golden retrievers. He wouldn't eat, all he would do was cry. So Friday night they brought him back and we had Boney for the next 11 years. <laughs> and then he began to grow. And that's, see, that's the thing about poem pu puppies. You never quite know what you're getting until it's more or less too late. So when he was about six months and about this tall, my husband threw a tennis ball. No point in trying to say, don't throw balls in the house. That one's not going to fly. So Boney went scrambling after the tennis ball, crashed into a brass and glass table, and broke a canine tooth. So we took him to see Dr. 80 Bucks. <laughs> I know the vet had a last name. I have no idea what it is, because we always called him Dr. 80 Bucks. It didn't matter how many dogs you took, what it was for, that was what the bill was, 80 Bucks. And so I asked him, I said, well, can you tell me what kind of a dog this is? He said, well, I, I think it's a black and tan canardly. Well, that sounded really exotic. I said, what kind of a dog is that? He said, well, you can hardly tell what kind of a dog he is, but I think he's half German Shepherd and half Irish Wolfhound. Oh, okay, so now what do we do about the tooth? He said, well, I don't do root canals. But here's a doggy dentist, an expensive doggy dentist, who does. So we took Boney there, and we dropped him off. And when we came back to pick him up a few hours later, the dentist came out from the back room and read us the riot act. He said, this is a very vicious dog. You need to have him put down immediately. Well, it turns out the dentist had tried to do Boney's root canal without having the dog properly anesthetized. You try to do a root canal on me without having me drugged and I will bite you too. <laughs> so we went back to Dr. 80 Bucks and he said, you need to take him this dog was too young to be away from his mommy to say nothing a bee abandoned in a pound. He is an insecure dog, and insecure dogs can be dangerous dogs. 
you need to take him to the Academy for Canine Behavior, which is a real place, leave him for four weeks of boot camp, and they will turn him, they will teach him how to be a dog. And we did, and they did. And Boney, he was tall enough to stand with his chin, flat-footed with his chin on the table, but he never took anything off the table. We had kids who went to school in Washington. We had kids who went to school in Tucson. So one year we had to caravan the kids down, down I-5. I, I can't get my direction straight down I-5 and then across I-10 to Tucson. So we had three cars, we had three dogs, and so there was one dog per car, and Boney rode with Bill and me. And his preferred seating arrangement was in the back seat with his chin resting on Bill's shoulder. Well, we would be on the freeway and cars would start past us and then all of a sudden they'd go like this because Boney's head was so big that it completely obscured Bell's. <laughs> and it looked for all the world like a dog was driving the car. <laughs> so that's, that's part of where Lucy comes from. The other part is from um, a dog named Stormy Girl. My daughter, my, my daughter lost her husband almost 14 years ago now to, after a nine-year battle with malignant melanoma. He was diagnosed sor shortly after they started dating. He tried to break up with her. She wouldn't break up. She was at his side all the way along. They uh, got engaged. They got married. And then they decided they wanted to have kids, and the doctor said, well, you know, if you wanted to have kids, you probably should have done something about that before your first round of chemo. And of course they hadn't. They said, well, we'll have dogs then. So they had two uh, rescued Goldens, Kenzie and Angel. And Kenzie and Angel were wonderful dogs. When our, our son-in-law, John Jans, by the way, he was our son-in-law, but when he and our daughter married, he took her last name. Uh, when John was 35, he said, okay, they've been telling me I'm gonna die any minute, and maybe I am, but before I die, I wanna go to Vegas and drive one of those race cars. So they grabbed up a bunch of their friends, they all flew down to Vegas, they drove the race cars. They came home. And several weeks later, my daughter came down with what she thought was a serious case of food poisoning. It was actually the beginning of morning sickness. So Colt, our grandson, was nine months old when we lost his daddy. By the way, our daughter is a smart young woman. She wanted uh, Colt to get into a sport where he did not have to wear sunscreen. She got him into bowling. <laughs> you don't have to wear sunscreen in bowling, Alice. And two weeks ago, at age 13, at a pro-am tournament, he bowled a 300 game. Oh. 
But when Colt was little, I, he thought he was a golden retriever. He liked kibble, which means for some pretty daunting pampers, let me tell you. And the kids had a fence around their yard. It was, it was about this high, and it had a, it was a wood fence with a, a single rail and nothing in between. Well, Colt became a toddler, but Kenzie and Angel never went outside the yard. And then one day, Colt was out in the yard. He climbed over the lower rail, and Kenzie and Angel said, whoa, and they went out too. So now there is a six-foot wooden fence around their yard. They lost Kenzie and Angel. They adopted another rescue named Snowflake. The kids live in near a uh, sort of ritzy tennis club. And those people, when they lose a ball, they never go out and go looking for it. So Colt kind of patrols the perimeter and he gathers up those stray tennis balls. And when they go on vacation, they go to shelters and drop tennis balls, boxes of tennis balls off. So they did that at a shelter, and Colt was walking through the enclosures, and he went up to this glass wall, and he put his hand on the glass and was looking at this 20-pound puppy on the other side. And the puppy came up and put her paw on the other side of the glass, and so, of course, that dog went home with them that night. And she only weighed 20 pounds, and then she grew, too because she is also an Irish wolfhound. So, last December, and by the way, Lucy gets her very disquieting black-eyed stare straight from Stormy Girl. Last December, our daughter picked the dogs up from doggy daycare and the counselor said, I think Stormy broke her dew claw today. You should probably take her to the vet. Our daughter did, and the vet came out and said, I believe she has developed canine melanoma. And our daughter almost lost it. And the doctor started to go on talking, and our daughter said, no, please do not say another word to me about this, because if you do, I'm going to faint. And then if you try to help me, Stormy will eat you alive. So from December on, Stormy was sort of on doggy hospice. We lost her just as I was finishing the corrections on this book. And that's why Stormy Girl is in the dedication. But Stormy was tall enough that she could stand on her hind legs and peer over the top of the fence. And people outside would say, my god, what kind of a dog is that? And no burglars bothered their house, trust me. So Lucy, based on Boney and Stormy, is who is helping Beaumont through this difficult time in his life. Bo grew up as the son of World War II era unwed mother. His biological father died in a car crash before his parents had quite tied the knot. He grew up in an apartment over a bakery where his, his mother earned a livelihood by being a seamstress. So living in a, over a bakery 
Beaumont never had a pet as a kid. He never had a goldfish, he never had a cat, and he certainly never had a dog. So this is a new experience to him. There were no Frisbees in Seattle in the 50s, so he has learned to throw Frisbees. And he's out in the backyard throwing Frisbees for Lucy when he hears a car coming down the driveway and pull up outside their yard. Knowing how upset people are when they encounter a humongous dog, he takes Lucy into the house and puts her on a stay on your rug command. And then he goes to the door. Now, before Bo gets to the door, I have to tell you a story. <laughs> Four years ago, we went to see our doctor for our annual physicals. And he, the doctor looked at my husband, who is five years older than I am, and he said, Bill, if you do not start walking within two years, you are going to be in an electric cart. I knew that an electric cart would be a death sentence for him. And so we went home the next day and we began walking. And when I first started walking, I could maybe walk 200 steps without, 250 steps without sitting down to rest. Before the book tour started in that one week, there were two days when I walked 8,000 steps in a row. So most of the time since in the past four years, I have walked 10,000 steps a day. And I have gone from a size 26 to a size 16, and I've lost 65 pounds. And Bill has lost 50 pounds, and it's four years later, and he is still not in an electric cart. But our doctor is one of those guys, you give him an inch, he thinks he's a ruler. <laughs> so he says to us, okay, now that you're walking, now that you're walking, what you really need to do is you need to join a gym. And I said, like bloody hell. You are not getting me into spandex for any amount of money. So he found us a personal trainer. Dan comes to our house three days a week, and we do a 30-minute workout with him. And a lot of what we do is very similar to the exercises on that series on PBS, Sit and Grow Fit. And, uh, we have very little equipment. We have uh, elastic bands to use, and we have a couple of barbells, but eight-pound barbells. But that's, that's all we have. The rest of the time, we use our chairs and our bodies. When I started, I could do no sits-to-stands. Now I can do 20 in a row. So it's really, and it's made a huge difference in my ability to put luggage in overhead <laughs> compartments. We had a house in Tucson for about 20 years, and we were sort of modified snowbirds. We'd go down right when the rain started at the end of September, and we'd stay almost to Thanksgiving. We'd come back to Washington for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then we'd go back to Tucson for January, February, and March. So in March, when we got back that first year after we started working out with Dan, it was time for our workout. He rang the bell. Bill went to open the door. 
And there stood Dan with an infancy, with an infant in it in one hand and a pink diaper bag over his other shoulder. Now at the time, Dan was 66 years old, long divorced, living by himself. And Bill said, well, it looks like you've been busy. <laughs> so Dan came in and told us his story. His 30-something-year-old daughter is a drug addict. Her boyfriend and the father of the infant is a drug addict. And her husband, who's been in jail long before the infant was conceived, he's been in prison, um, is also a drug addict. So the daughter had the baby and then abandoned her drug-addicted newborn in the hospital and walked. Dan had spent three, nights, three months spending almost every night at Seattle Children's Hospital, nursing the baby through withdrawal, helping to get her birth weight up on, to a point where she could be released from the hospital. And Dan raised that child on his own for nine months. She is now three and a half. She is a bright-eyed little cutie. She lives in Spokane with a woman who, Dan, Dan is her legal guardian, but he chose a family member to be her adopted mother. He was going to Spokane last weekend to visit, <clears throat> and he, they, they FaceTime every night, and so she usually kisses Grandpa goodnight on the cell phone. So he said, aren't you going to come kiss Grandpa goodnight? She said, no. He said, why not? She said, I'm busy. <laughs> he said, what are you doing? She said, I'm cooking. So she was over in her little play school kitchen. And he said, what are you cooking? She said, I'm cooking food so you will have food to eat this weekend. She is just as bright as a new penny. But she wouldn't be if Dan hadn't been there fighting for her every step of the way. And by the way, do you want to know why the adoption hasn't gone through? His daughter has relinquished her parental rights. The boyfriend has relinquished his parental rights. The guy who's in prison, who has no biological connection whatsoever, has not relinquished his, and the state is trying to reunite the family. I'm sorry. The system is totally and completely broken. So Bo answers the door. And there's a guy standing there with an infant carrier in one hand and a diaper bag over the other shoulder. And the guy says, Detective Beaumont, and Bo says, well, I haven't been detective for a long time. And uh, who are you? And the guy said, well, years ago, I was with a bus and truck show when Jasmine Day played the Fifth Avenue Theater. And Bo says, oh, yeah, I remember that. And he said, well, come on in, and we'll have a cup of coffee. So the guy comes in. His name is Alan Dale, named after my nephew, Dale Allen. And uh, 
he tells his story because he has a drug-addicted daughter who abandoned her drug-addicted baby, and he is now her temporary guardian. But in order to take the baby back home to Texas, he needs to get his daughter to relinquish her parental rights, and she's nowhere to be found. He has come to ask Beaumont, as a private investigator, to find his daughter. So Bo said, well, do you have a photo of your daughter? And so Alan Dale reaches in his pocket, he gets out of his wallet, he hands Bo a photograph. Oopsie. Looks just like J.P. Beaumont's daughter, Kelly. Remember that one night stand with Jasmine Day and taking the fifth? Well, J.P. Beaumont has just learned that you can't outrun your past. <laughs> this is a Beaumont book. But you know who the real hero of this book is? It's Alan Dale. There are thousands, probably millions, of people my age who aren't are being around to see the national parks of the, the United States. They're not going on Viking river cruises because they're at home going to PTA meetings and little league games and, and parent-teacher conferences because they are raising the children, the grandchildren, their kids abandon. And this book is a thank you for all those people. I told you earlier that I divorced my husband in 1980. By 1982, he was working construction in Phoenix. He had uh, he broke his wrist in May, and it was an on-the-job injury, so it was covered by workman's comp. He was living in a house that belonged to his mother. He didn't have to pay rent. He didn't have to uh, pay utilities, and so he drank. He drank from May to just November. Just before Thanksgiving, Mary Grandma, my first mother-in-law, called him to say, uh, oh, I just got a last minute ticket to come down and have Thanksgiving dinner with you. So without paying any attention to how much he had been drinking or for how long, he decided to sober up for his mother's visit. They had Thanksgiving dinner together and then at midnight that night, a Tempe police officer found him lying in the middle of the street. At first, they thought he had been the victim of a hit and run, but in actual fact, when they got him to the hospital, they discovered he had gone into DTs and he was hospitalized with no kidney or liver function. So Mary Grandma was there in Scottsdale with him. She had a seventh grade education and she couldn't get the doctors to give her any kind of a straight answer. So she finally called me and asked me if I would speak to the doctors. And so I did. 
and this is what happened. He's dying. Words come through the wire and hammer home, despite the doctor's cloying, unctuous tone. He's dying. I thought my tears exhausted years ago, but yet it hurts. Oh God, how much it hurts. He's dying. This is what I wanted when I thought a widow's garb would suit me better than a court's decree. He's dying. Should I go to him or stay away? What right have I to be there now? He's dying. I'll go. So I flew to Phoenix the day after Thanksgiving or Christmas. I was there at the hospital with him and with her. On New Year's Eve, I took her out to dinner, the early bird special at Denny's. And then we came back to the hospital. And this is what happened. <clears throat> we keep a vigil by his midnight bed, his mother and his former wife, grieving for the man we loved and lost. It's harder for his mother than for me. I've already known the sting of loss. She's only now begun to see she cannot win. He's quiet now. A nurse comes in to loosen his restraints, not looking at the women waiting there. She knows. She doesn't want to say. The hours creep by. All stories are expended, yet we need some sound to hold the night at bay. Please sing, his mother asks me, and I do. It is a serenade of love, of songs we knew and treasured through the years, from body barroom ditties to sweet hymns. The hours flow by. We hold his hands. I sing a line and wait to see if he will breathe again. He doesn't. It's over. Amen. I went back to Seattle. And I had to go to the strong box to get out all the documents you must present when someone dies. Birth certificates, marriage certificates, divorce decree. And in that strong box, I found scraps of paper on which I had started jotting down pieces of poetry way back in the 60s. At the time I was writing them, I thought I was being true to my art. But as I was rereading them after he died, it was like seeing my life in instant replay. And I realized I had been using words to deal with the central issues of my life. I showed them to someone and they said, this needs to be a book. And this is the book, After the Fire. The title poem goes like this. I have touched the fire. It burned me, but I knew I lived. It seared me but it made me whole. He called me. I went gladly, though I saw the rocks fell laughing through the singeing air. I have known the fire. I'll live with nothing rather than with less. The flame is out. There's nothing left but ash. The book came out in 1984 in October. In 1985, a woman who ran a grief support group in the Seattle area, asked me if I would come and do a poetry reading at a widowed retreat in June. So I went. I was very nervous about it because I was divorced when my husband died and all of those other good people were still married. 
When I got there, I expressed my concern to one of the counselors, and he said, oh, don't worry about it. If you feel like grieving, go ahead and do it here. So Saturday night after dinner, you had a choice of either the egg race outside or you could do a grief workshop inside. So I did the grief workshop. But because I was nervous, I sat right next to the facilitator. We were supposed to go around the room, say our name, our spouse's name, what they died of, when they died. And I said, my name is Judy, my husband's name was Jerry. He died of chronic alcoholism, New Year's Eve of 1982-83. And then at about 10 o'clock in the room, there was this guy who said his name was Bill, his wife's name was Lynn, and she died of breast cancer on New Year's Eve, 1984-85. I thought, wow, we had that day in common. Well, then we were supposed to share. So I shared, and I said I'd been on my own since 1980. Nobody was ringing my doorbell at Bay Vista, so obviously my life as a woman was over, and I was raising my kids, writing my books, and making the best of a bad bargain. And then I waited to see what Mr. Ten O'Clock would say, and he didn't say a word. So when the workshop was over, I went looking for him with blood in my eye. I didn't know him, but I was mad at him. I found him outside. He was roasting marshmallows out by the bonfire, and so I went stalking up to him. Oh, so what are you? The strong, silent type? And he said, no, it still hurts too much to talk about it. Within five minutes, I was literally crying on his shoulder, and I was thinking, oh my god, this is so stupid, but it sort of feels good. And he was standing with one hand around my waist and trying to figure out what he should do with the other hand because we had both dated the first person we ever, married the first person we ever dated and we were about to marry the second person we ever dated. We met on the 21st of June. We got married on the 21st of December. Our 34th wedding anniversary is coming up in December. When we got married, we were in love. Our five adolescent children were not in love, so that was sort of challenging. But you know, this is a sad book with a very happy ending. And of all of my books, I think this one is the most important. In, 19, in the late 70s and early 80s, I was in the insurance business in Phoenix. I was wrestling with whether or not I should get a divorce. I drove from appointment to appointment, listening to the music of Gordon Lightfoot, cobwebs and dust, cobwebs and dust. I hate to leave you, but leave you I must. And Helen Reddy, I am woman, hear me roar in numbers too big to ignore. And then there was the music of Janice Ian. Oh my goodness. The lyrics to her songs just struck lightning in my soul. But there was one song in particular that really moved me. It was her song at 17. I was six feet tall by the time I was in seventh grade. I was smart. I wore thick glasses. And if that isn't a recipe for social disaster in junior high and high school, I don't know what is. So as soon as I heard that song, I thought, boy, 
she and I have walked in the same moccasins. But then I found out she's only four foot ten. <laughs> when we're together, she barely comes up to my elbow. But I loved that song. And when I started doing presentations, I often closed them by singing that song. In June of 2008, I had agreed the year before that I would go to Boise, Idaho and be the keynote speaker for a writer's conference. But then my husband's bilateral knee surgery, knee replacement surgery, was moved from August to, to June. And the day I was supposed to be in Boise was the day he was supposed to go from the hospital to rehab. And I told my daughters, okay, I'm gonna call the writer's conference. I'm going to tell them that my husband is in the hospital and I'm not coming. And my daughter said, mom, you gave your word. We'll look after dad, you keep your promise. Doesn't it piss you off when your kids start saying back the words to you that you've said to them, teaching them lessons all this time? So muttering under my breath, I went to Boise. I was a keynote speaker at noon on Saturday. I ended with Janice's song. And when I got back to Seattle on Sunday night, there was an email from Janice Ian in my box, in my mailbox. And I opened it and it said, hey, I heard you sang my song in Boise and that you did a good job of it. Somebody who was a fan of mine and a fan of hers had gone back to Nashville and had tattled on me. And that's how Janice Ian and I became friends. A couple of years ago, at, in Tampa, at the Tampa News Festival, we sang that song as a duet. And that wasn't very easy because she still has her full vocal range. And she said, Judy, you sing in the key of R. <laughs> and so here, in the key of R, is Janice Ian's iconic song. I learned the truth at 17 that love was meant for beauty queens and high school girls with clear skin smiles who married young and then retired. The Valentines I never knew, the Friday night charades of youth were spent on ones more beautiful. At 17, I learned the truth. And those of us with ravaged faces lacking in the social graces desperately remained at home, inventing lovers on the phone who called to say, come dance with me and murmur vague obscenities at ugly girls like me. At 17, a brown-eyed girl in hand-me-downs whose name I never could pronounce said, pity please the ones who serve. They only get what they deserve. The rich relation hometown queen marries into what she needs with a guarantee of company, <laughs> haven for the elderly. Remember those who win the game, lose the love they sought to gain in debentures of quality and dubious integrity. The small town eyes will gape at you in dull surprise when payment due. 
exceeds accounts received at 17. For those of us who learn the pain of Valentines that never came, for those whose names were never called when choosing sides for basketball, we all played the game, and when we dare, we cheat ourselves at solitaire, inventing lovers on the phone, repenting other lives unknown, who call to say, come dance with me, and murmur vague obscenities at ugly girls like me at 17. It was long ago and far away, the world was younger than today, and dreams were all they gave for free to ugly duckling girls like me. Thank you for making my dreams come true. That wraps up our Washington County Library R.H. Stafford event with J.A. Jantz. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Dacre Stoker at Anoka County Library, Northtown. Dacre Stoker is the great-grandnephew of renowned Irish novelist Bram Stoker, the mind behind the genre-defining 1897 classic, Dracula. Using his famous ancestor's own handwritten manuscripts and notes, Stoker has penned an internationally best-selling prequel to the Dracula story we all know. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.